0: Susan Strader was a frail 100, 100 pound woman in her early 70s. She parked her truck in her driveway in what she thought was park and park. She got out to walk around it. Actually, in neutral, the truck rolled backwards, caught her, flipping her under the truck, truck dragging her 20 feet through a metal fence. Her husband heard the commotion and came out to find her fin, her face down, pinned with one of the wheels resting on top of her on top of her chest, and had to drive the truck off of her ribcage. After an airlift to a nearby hospital and a few surgeries for seven broken ribs, two breaks in the leg, and multiple organs that were damaged, and skin grafts, she points to this incident, not accident, in her book as what allows her to help others use meditation to overcome traumatic times. But she also uses it as an opportunity to share that there's often a disconnect between what you were taught to believe as a child and the world you are now occupying. In fact, you have to discard many of those old beliefs because there are way better ways to understand the world that you need to contemplate. Susan was brought up in a strict Christian home, going to church regularly. Her mom was was saved when Susan was a young teenager, and she and her five younger siblings seemed to toe the line in following Christ. Susan got married, had three children, taught Bible studies, but she felt there was more than just regurgitating what she was taught to believe— She wanted to have more than one way of understanding the Bible. She says her concept of God was twisted. In the manner someone sitting on a swing and twirling, now the untwirling has to begin. In her doubt of who God really is, she questioned her teachers rather than looking back to the foundation of God's word. Her untwisting became a casting off of biblical Christianity in exchange for meditation and man's knowledge of man. I speak this with sadness because Susan Strader, this writer, is my sister, and many of you prayed for her three years ago when she had her accident. My sister's a very kind, loving woman who's gracious and amazingly healed since her accident. She points to her use of meditation as the means by which she was healed, but the methodologies she espouses are in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches about meditation. I want to use her story as a jumping-off point to explore James chapter 1, verse 19-27, through 27, and the subject of meditating on God's Word. Over the last few times I've had an opportunity to fill this pulpit. I've been working us slowly through the book of James, You might recall that this small Proverbs-like book of the New Testament was written by none other than Jesus' half-brother, James. Growing up with a brother like Christ, James saw that Christ was sinless, but he had rejected him during his earthly ministry. But James was saved, his heart was turned to Christ, and he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. An amazing transformation. And James was chosen to be the first writer of the New Testament, just 12 to 17 years after the death of Christ. These words in the book of James were the first recorded documentation of the early church, written to those likely of his own congregation who were scattered around out of Israel because of persecution or job changes or slavery or many other reasons. The first part of James chapter 1, talks about these the trials that these people were likely enduring for the sake of the gospel. Their families may have rejected them. They may have lost their jobs because of their faith. And James warned them that there is a regression that easily happens. They will lack faith, and they will need to ask of God. They will doubt. They will be tossed around like a wave of the sea. They would then become double-minded and then unstable. Does this sound like someone who eventually says, we are all born with the ability to create the life we want if we focus on our desires. It lies dormant until we decide to use it. Faith or spirituality is a muscle that needs to be built and strengthened, as my sister said about her incident. Let's look to see how James continues his book as we read James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Within this passage, we want to explore the priority of the Word, the purpose of the Word, the plan of the Word, and the proof of the Word. We're going to make it simple. But before this, I want to ask, when James mentions the Word, what is he referring to? The New Testament had yet to be written. Of course, the Jews did have the writings of the Old Testament, which was considered to be the Word of God. Yes, this would have been part of the answer. Verse 25 of our passage in James speaks of looking into the perfect law of liberty. The Jews certainly were familiar with the law of Moses. Although written later, John fourteen twenty four to 25, recalls Jesus' words to the disciples. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Think of this concept. Picture the disciples just a month after Christ has left or maybe just a year after his ascension. They're recalling what he said, recalling his words, then reflecting on the Old Testament scriptures and they're putting them together. It's like just finding gold nuggets laying all around. It must have been an exciting time. It was all coming together to them. It was confirming what Christ had told them. So let's start exploring our passage starting with verse 19, the priority of the word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let every man be quick to hear. Well, what would he be quick to hear? What is the antecedent of this hearing? Look look back at verse 18. Of his own will, of Christ's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Christ's word of truth is what we should be quick to hear. This verse 19 answers the how of the first parts of the chapter. How do I endure trials? How do I keep from being unstable or like a wave tossed to and fro by the wind? I need to make it a priority to be quick to hear the word of God. For some of the people hearing James's words, they actually did hear Christ's words. They were there as Christ had preached to them while he was on earth. And in order to be quick to, be, to hear to be successful, I need to be slow to speak slow to wrath ah so quick to hear listening to and reading and dwelling in god's word will slow down my reaction to trials to say things i should not that will cause me to be slow to wrath then almost as a a side emphasis james dismisses anger as a solution to trials for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god prioritize the word of god in your life it will change your heart because that's where the anger comes out of Anger keeps no company with one who regularly inputs the word of God. But the word of God has an even greater purpose in your life. Our second observation is the purpose of the word of God. Look with me at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This word implanted has the literal meaning of a planted seed. God put it there. It has taken root. It's on fertile soil. It needs to grow. What's the main nutrient for its growth? The word of God. Remember, this book was written to James's congregation who had left. They're now scattered. They've left the area. There's a lot of persecution going on in Jerusalem. They already had heard the good news of the gospel. That was in their heart. The fact of Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross to pay our penalty for sins, his resurrection in power, his hope of eternal life. This is the implanted word that is described here and also in Romans 1, 16. The purpose, though, of the planted word is what? Which is able to save your souls. If our sin is what condemns us, then Christ's righteousness is what saves us. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. It can't be anything that we can do. Our hope is not that we were all born with the ability to create life, create the life we want if we focus on our desires. That's just false. No, we have a sure and steady anchor and that is able to save our souls. It's rooted and grounded in the knowledge of the word of God, but we can't just stop there. Reading and studying God's word is great, but a third observation is found in verses 22 to 25. We see God's plan of the word This passage creates a perfect picture of what happens when we only look at Scripture intellectually. We might be able to accurately identify things that need attention. We look in the mirror. Yep, I have a big pimple right in the middle of my forehead. Yep, my hair needs to be combed. Yes, I see I haven't been controlling my tongue. Yes, I'm convicted about a personal sin that's been besetting me. Yes, my thought life has not been pure. So, what is the antidote? Be doers of the word. Look into the perfect law of liberty and persevere. Notice it doesn't say read someone's commentary on the passage. It doesn't say work through a Bible study lesson, hear a sermon. Those are all good things, but is the man who looks intently at the word of God. The word hearers here was used to describe those who would sit in audiences passively and hear a singer or speaker. I don't mean to convict any of you, but it's kind of like BTI. You're just auditing. They're just coming there, just sitting in the room and not doing all the work that it requires. Just a passive listener. They're able to come and sit the theology, maybe in BTI, but not reading the books. They're not accountable to BTI in the same way, not being a doer of the word, you're not then accountable to it. James here is saying, be one of those who gets serious about what you're hearing. Study it, ruminate on it, know it, digest it, bring it back up again. This is the result of meditating on God's word. Do you realize how many people call themselves Christians and they expose themselves weekly to teaching and preaching God's word, but they never make the effort to apply it to, day, to their day-to-day lives? 2 Peter 1.10 gives a stern warning about this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Joshua Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The plan is to meditate on God's word and it will yield the righteous results. He will be blessed in his doing, it says. We've seen the priority of the word, the purpose of the word, the plan of the word. Let's look at the proof of the word, James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Following on the heels of looking into God's word intently and persevering, there will be results that prove that God's word is real in a person's life. First James dismisses religious actions. This would go, be like going into church. It would be uh, maybe even giving. It could be performing religious ceremonies, saying prayers. Outward actions, even having the right theology, will have no spiritual impact apart from true saving faith and honorable motives that will glorify the Lord. Rather than being two-faced, saying that you love Christ, and then having a speech that denies Christ, James gives the example of serving someone who cannot return back the favor. Now, non-Christians certainly can and do visit orphans and widows. How do you do this in a way that is undefiled, though, before God the Father? How do you do that? Well, how about John thirteen thirty-five? By this we'll know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Unlike the Pharisees of James' time, the genuineness of one's salvation is not determined by your own man-made qualifications or standards, but by God's standards. And in Matthew fifteen six, we read Jesus' word to the Pharisees. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me the action part of james 1:27 the real proof the real test is found in the last statement of our passage to keep oneself unstained from the world this is a regular continuous action verb not a one time occurrence to have a life that's unstained from the world you cannot do it with a heart that you cannot do without a heart that is truly seeking after god so how do you have a heart that seeks after god It all points back to the previous verses of our passage. Be quick to hear the word of God. Receive the implanted word of God. Be doers of the word of God. Look intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere. This is how you keep yourself unstained from the world. This is the proof of the word. Well, with that introduction to our passage, let's look a bit further at the subject of meditation. Now, I don't want to scare you. We're going to all sit in the yoga position and contemplate our navels. That's not the idea here. Unfortunately, that term has been hijacked in the last few centuries. The Puritans focused intently on meditation, and it is very biblical. David Saxton recently wrote a book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind, The Puritan Practice of Biblical Meditation. This has greatly impacted me and made me stop to think long and hard about this subject. After reading the book four or five times, it's starting to have an impact on me. I'm a slow learner. Consider Psalm 1, which sets the stage for understanding the entire book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It In all that it does, he, proffer, he profits. Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We all meditate on something, whether it's right or wrong or neutral. We all meditate. There's always something churning around in our brains. Some might meditate on a problem in their life. Or maybe an offense that someone committed to, against you maybe decades ago. You've heard the expression, ask a woman what she's thinking, you'll get a response of about 3,000 words. Ask a man what he's thinking, and he'll say, nothing. Well, that's not true. We are thinking about something. There's always something in there. Maybe it's how to remove the weeds from your lawn, or, or how to deal with a coworker in the office, or maybe a scene from a movie we saw weeks ago, or maybe a song that we sung previous Sunday, or an attribute of God. A Bible verse that we read in the morning. This is all meditation, good or bad. The Christian life without meditation is explained this way by David Saxton Imagine being invited to a private dinner hosted by a friend who works as a chef at a five star restaurant. The person is renowned for cooking meals that are nutritious, healthy, delightful, and satisfying. You can hardly wait for the day to arrive. Finally, it comes, and from the moment you step in the front door, you're embraced by tantalizing aromas. As the host seats you, the colors and the arrangement of the food on various dishes are a feast for your eyes. Your friend has thoughtfully chosen all of your favorite foods. However, just as you go to sink your fork into that first bite to raise it to your lips, your cell phone goes off madly. The voice on the line is your boss, and you must be to work immediately. Can't wait. You know you will never eat these delicacies before you. You saw the food, you smelled it, but you never tasted it, digested it, or benefited from it. That's the Christian life without meditation. A godly person does not just snack occasionally on the word of God. Rather, it's his delight. Unfortunately, with all the distractions in our lives that were supposed to make our lives easier, we have lost focus on how to meditate on the word of God. We're anemic, malnurtured, amusing ourselves to death. I find myself in this condition sometimes. This is also the reason we have a lack of confidence in God's word to sufficiently deal with issues, problems, and temptations. How has God designed us to comfort and relief? How has God designed for us to find comfort and relief for our hurting hearts? Should we seek relief in sports, entertainment, hobbies, alcohol, amusement, music, shopping, Or some other such worldly remedy? The Puritan, Edmund Smith, stated, Meditation will lead to calmness of disposition, a serenity of mind, and a certainty about the ways of God. And Thomas Watson commented, A Christian enters into meditation as a man enters into the hospital, that he may be healed. Meditation heals the soul of its deadness and its earthliness. For our study today, let me define meditation as to think personally practically, seriously, and earnestly on how the truth of God's word should look in life. To think personally, practically, seriously, and earnestly on how the truth of God should look in life. Thomas Hooker defined it as, "...serious intention of mind whereby we come to search out the truth and settle it effectually upon the heart." list a few of other purposes here's what other puritan writers added divine meditation has a multifaceted value it provides us spiritual discernment improves our bible reading and prayer lives applies the general truths of the bible personally and specifically strengthens our hearts by focusing on spiritual truths and provides lasting benefit from dwelling on truths we know I like what John Ball wrote in the 17th century. No one can exempt himself from this duty unless he purposes to live uncomfortably to himself, unprofitably to others, and disobedient against God. He said, Without meditation, truths are devoured, not digested. This is what it's like to hear a sermon but not to meditate on it. I feel guilty. Another look at it for you ladies would be to compare it to hot water in a tea bag. Dip it once, you'll have a slight fa- flavor of tea to your water, but let it steep in there for a while. Let it get that taste soaked into it. You'll get the full flavor. Look back at Joshua 1.8 we read earlier. Here Joshua was ready to go into battle. The Jews had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. They're getting ready to cross over into the Jordan, into the promised land. So God meets with Joshua and he gives him a battle plan. Okay, Joshua, here's your bla- battle plan. You ready? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous then you have big you'll have good success Joshua's biggest need was to live by meditating on God's word when we fail to meditate on God's word we're far more easily tempted to fall into sin Satan loves an idle mind Thomas Watson stated, a Christian without meditation is like a soldier without a weapon or like a workman without tools. As a young teenager, I remember John MacArthur referring to meditation as chewing the cud, and that stuck with me. Cows have four stomachs. They chew their food multiple times and send it to different stomachs for different purposes. They spend about eight hours a day just chewing their same food to produce milk. Just think if we lived in a fully agrarian society still. We didn't have all the distractions around us and we could just meditate as we plowed fields or or fished for food like they did back in the first century. We've really complicated our lives. Again, Thomas Watson wrote, By nature, we shun holy meditation. To meditate on worldly, secular things, even if it were all day, we can do without any diversions. But to have our thoughts fixed on God, how hard do we find it? How do our hearts quarrel with this duty? Satan does what he can to hinder this duty. He is the enemy of meditation. The devil cares not how much we hear nor how little we meditate. Just try to meditate on God's word for five minutes. Five minutes. The distractions are endless. It's something like Doug in the movie Up saying, squirrel. There we go. Our mind went off somewhere else. The attention span is so easily pulled by something else. Let's look at unbiblical forms of meditation. Psalm seven fourteen. behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives lies, give birth to lies. Or Psalm 36, 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. There's evil ways to meditate. What a, church, what a person chooses to meditate on daily reveals his true spiritual condition. King James Version of Proverbs 23, written by Solomon, says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And that is true. In most Christian circles, if we brought up the the subject of meditation, you'd be outright suspicious of it, mainly because of what the New Age movement has done with the concept. It's come to mean that you're seeking some sort of spiritual experience through an existential encounter apart from God's word. In the 1960s, we had the Hare Krishna movement, Transcendental meditation and yoga came to us from the Eastern and Hindu religions. Yoga, a popular exercise process, is said to deal systematically with all levels of our being, including our senses, our body, our breath, and our mind. It deals with your relationship with the rest of the world, but it excludes meditation on God's Word. Yoga in America market study in 2008 estimated that over 15 million people in the U.S. practice yoga think about it. Rather than turning to God's truth to understand how we resolve issues, sinners seek to find peace and tranquility apart from Christ. It makes people replace the word of God in their life with their own reasoning, their own absolutes. They become their own God. It's like Judges twenty one twenty five, where every man did what was right in their own eyes. Biblical meditation does not seek to empty one's mind of thought. It seeks to fill it with scripture and thoughts of the almighty God. That is proper meditation. My sister Susan is into Reiki. I didn't even know what Reiki was. I had to study it and understand it. It's another form of Eastern mysticism designed to channel your energy to hear and to help others. It sounds great in concept. Here's a quote from William Lee Rand, one of their grandmasters from the International Center of Reiki Training. Since Reiki respects free will, it will not heal us or develop these higher states unless we invite it to do so. This requires that we will be willing to change the ability to recognize unhealthy personal qualities within ourselves and will be willing to let them go as necessary if we are to move forward with our personal healing. Those who accept Reiki as their spiritual path and are devoted to allowing it to heal them completely and surrender to its ability to do this find that Reiki will guide them more quickly along the path of healing. This process can include improving the quality of the Reiki energy that one is able to channel as well as helping to develop all the qualities that are healthy for a person to have. The positive healthy traits Reiki is capable of developing within us include patience, love of self, and others, non-competitiveness. It moves us into a place of acceptance of others' ideas and beliefs and helps us be non-judgmental, empowers our ability to forgive, develops gratitude for friends and family, for all we have and experience improves the quality of joy and peace we experience and most importantly increases our connection to the source of reiki so that an even stronger feeling of safety develops as reiki more easily guides our lives and watches over all that we do folks this is incompatible with the word of god the first command was to have no other god before me it may sound very spiritual to be patient to be loving to be non-judgmental but without Christ as the focus, the Bible says it will damn you to hell. There is no ultimate source of absolutes with Reiki. Each man will do what is right in his own eyes. I don't doubt there may be some healing powers in meditation, but how, uh, how do we know it's not a false sign? Remember the magicians with Moses before Pharaoh? They were able to turn their staffs into snakes, weren't they? They were worshipers of false gods. My sister healed at an amazing rate, which she attributes to Reiki meditation. She could be right, but anything that distracts from giving Jesus Christ glory as the Savior of this world must be rejected. One other biblical form of meditation that I have to mention, and it's just as condemned in the Bible, is dwelling your thoughts on matters that have little or no eternal value. While many Christians would vehemently condemn something like transcendental meditation or Reiki, They have no problems with straying sinful thoughts to supersede thoughts that center on God. This type of meditation is also condemned in the Bible. I know I struggle with thoughts that stray from Christ and they're often useless. David Saxon, in his book, uses scriptures uh, from the Bible to express meditation. The word haga is one used in this passage I read earlier from Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1.2. It's translated moan, roar, utter, growl, meditate, devise, speak, or imagine. It's brooding over something with the heart. Another word is sayach, translated as uh, meditate in Psalm 119. It's tied to what one loves in their heart, but this word can be spoken or silent to lovingly rehearse in one's mind, to ponder, to pray, Psalm one nineteen one fourteen says, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Of course, Psalm 119, almost every verse talks about the Word of God, so it's only logical the psalmist would encourage meditation thereupon. This is a spiritual activity that characterizes one who loves the Lord. In the New Testament, in the ESV version, we never see the tr- it translated in the New Testament, meditate on God's word, but it is pervasive throughout the pages. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 is very clear. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word think here is logizomai, to be careful, to give careful thought to a matter, to think about it, to let one's mind dwell on a subject. So where do we find the things that Paul directs his readers to have learned and received and heard? It's in Paul's writings. This would be the epistles. Logizomai, or meditate, or give careful thought to the word of God, and you will have true peace. Peace. My sister just this Friday wrote on a brief blog, what occupies your mind when you're doing repetitive work? Are you able to find a space in there to give yourself love and appreciation? Maybe it's time to consider where you've been, where you're going, and how to be the best you right now. As much as I love my sister, I have to reject her antidote for being the best me right now. If I want true peace, I don't need my own standards for love. I need to spend more waking time regurgitating God's word in my mind. Another term that relates to meditation in the New Testament is consider. Hebrews 12.3 commands us to consider the suffering of Christ. Bring that concept up often in your mind. It will increase your view of God and decrease your own worth. Another word, pondering. Mary, she was visited by the angels and she pondered these things in her heart. Announcing the birth of Christ through her would have been rehearsed through her mind tens of thousands of times, I'm sure, after that. These words were recorded in Scripture. To ponder is to think about, seriously, reflect upon, or debate in one's mind. We also see biblical terms like setting one's mind or affections or remembering. These are part of meditation. The Puritan William Fenner identified four items in meditation an exercise of the mind, a settled exercise dwelling on a truth to make further inquiry, that is looking at the subject from different angles. And lastly, it labors to affect the heart. Think of this as a discipline to maintain godly thoughts throughout the day. There's a battle going on all day in your mind. As one who loves the Lord, we must slow our pace down and create time to allow God's truths to sink into our thinking. But the real goal is that it would then affect our hearts, and then the personal application. The Puritans divided meditation into occasional meditation and deliberate meditation. I think that helps us understand maybe how to be disciplined more in this area. Occasional meditation would be like the conversations we should have all day long with our children in Deuteronomy 6. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you bind them as frontlets between your eyes, you write them on the doorposts in the house of your gates, this is a worldview that sees every action, every opportunity of life, every experience through the lens of God's word. It's not a premeditated meditation. It overlays special revelation as things occur in your daily life. Psalm 111.2 says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. The heavens do declare declare the glory of God, and that's One of the ways that we stop and we say, wow, God, you've created a beautiful sunset today. You stop and you meditate on Christ. George Swinock said, God has given us three books which we ought to be studying whilst we be living. Yes, he was a Puritan. The book of conscience, the book of scripture, and the book of creature. In the book of conscience, we may read of ourselves. In the book of creature, nature, we may read of God. In the book of scripture, we may read of both God and ourselves. Think of occasional meditation as portable meditation. You can do it at any time, anywhere, any place. This is what provides daily spiritual growth and godly thinking. We have to be intentional about making these things happen, though, on these occasions when they make themselves available. This can serve also as a divine escape plan for your mind to wander into the wrong areas or depressing places. Isn't it our minds that are the most wicked parts of our lives, our thoughts? This is how you stop that. Henry Scudder, commenting on Matthew twelve forty four, wrote, When you're alone, be sure that you are well and fully exercised about something that is good, either in the works of your calling, or in reading, or in holy meditation, or prayer. For whensoever Satan does find you idle and out of employment in some or other of those works which God has appointed, he will take that as an opportunity to use you for himself and to employ you in some of his works." I believe this is the big subtle danger of yoga and Reiki and other mind-emptying practices. It's designed to clear your mind and what can enter in then. If it's not the word of God, there's a grave danger. Consider Christ's words in Matthew twelve forty-three and 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from where I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is where the Gnostics, mystics, and even the Anabaptist fanatics went wrong. You see this propensity also in the charismatic movement. When you downgrade the value of Scripture, it opens yourself up to personal revelations. David Hall warned, We must be cautious. Let our meditations be too far-fetched, lest they savor too much of superstition. It would be superstitious when we choose those grounds of meditation which are forbidden us, or when we employ our own desires to use above their reach. For out of our own pleasure, we may make them not only steps towards God, but parts of the worship of God. In both these cases, our meditations degenerate and grow perilous to the soul. You see the key role that scripture memorization has in all this? That becomes your stockpile of truth for your mind to constantly dwell on. So that's occasional meditation. Deliberate meditation is a little different. Deliberate. Puritans valued this far more than occasional meditation. This is the daily plan to meditate on the Lord at specific times. Thomas White split this into sermons, providence, practical truths of religion, and scripture. A set, deliberate application of the mind to a spiritual subject that ends with a greater love for God and a hatred of sin. The key feature is that it is planned. This should be the foundation of our godly thinking and actions. Direct meditation would start with an effort to gain a better understanding of a spiritual topic, a convincing of the heart of the truths of Scripture. This is a true chewing of the cud and looking at the subject from every angle until you're finished with it. It might start with hearing a podcast or downloading a sermon or to initiate your thoughts. The Holy Spirit might grip your heart with a truth that it wants to explore and then off you go. But it also needs reflective element. Remember our passage James 1, through 25? If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If direct meditation is the contemplative part of understanding, then reflective meditation is a responsive act of the conscience. The heart is filled with goodness, and it overflows with thoughts and expressions and action. It asks the question, what do I do with what I've just learned? Ask your soul a series of probing questions. Call yourself into account. Ask for mercy. Ask yourself, how much am I indebted to God after you've studied his word? William Fenner had a few good ideas. One, weigh and ponder your heart. Two, strip sin and look at it naked. Three, dive into your own soul and heart. And fourthly, anticipate and prevent your own heart. Do you want to be able to make spiritual resolutions you can keep like Jonathan Edwards does? I mean, you look at a guy like that and just, you think, how godly of a man. How do you do that? Do you want to build resolve once and for all against certain besetting sins? Then meditate in this way. If you meditated regularly on God's word, do you think you'd still drift along putting up with so many culturally accepted sins? No. Reflective meditation will bring your mind under subjection to the lordship of Christ. So how do we make this practice in our lives? The Puritans were great at providing practical answers that are still effective today. Edmund Calmy explained that for meditation to be effective, it has to enter through three doors, the understanding, the heart, and conversation. For understanding to occur, let's explore the best time of day for meditation. Each of you is different. Just like my children, as they were growing up, one would spring out of bed ready to tackle the day immediately, while another was surprised there were actually two 8 o'clocks in each day. <laughs> Thomas Watson argued that the morning was the best time. Before worldly occasions stand knocking at the door to be let in. Richard Baxter shared that evening was the best time for him and sometimes even in the night itself. The best time is when you're most alert. Of course we can't all stop at 11 o'clock in the middle of the afternoon in the morning. But having a stated time will defend against temptation to miss the opportunity. Aren't we called to give our first fruits, to give our best? Thomas Manton warned, though, When men have bound up themselves in chains of their own making, their consciences fall upon them and dog them with restless accusations when they cannot accomplish so much duty as they have set and prescribed to themselves. Don't overcommit. Whether morning or evening, do whatever it takes to make a consistent habit of meeting with the Lord for prayer, Bible study, and meditation. And choose a place that's free from distractions. Try meditating at the breakfast table when everyone's getting ready for their day. That's not going to work. Jesus, Isaac, David, John the Baptist, they all went to a place of solitude to meditate. Turn off the TV. Consciously turn off the ringer on your phone. Disconnect from your gadgets. Set aside time to hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. If you meditate in the same location, it's going to remove distractions. Did I say squirrel? (laughs) We get distracted so easy. As far as the amount of time you should meditate, you certainly cannot be legalistic about this. Reality is that some days you're going to have more time than others. Watson said wisely, meditate so long until you find your heart grow warm in this duty. Remember, it's a relationship. It's not a box that has to be checked off. There should be no time limits. In our Western culture, we have been so quick to subject our relationships to time. Instead, look at the quality of the relationship. Before you know it, an hour will have passed. Remember our analogy earlier about being like a meal you want to enjoy? Stop. Enjoy the smells, the taste, the atmosphere, and the beauty of your relationship with your Savior in his word. Above all, whatever you do, make it sustainable. Don't immediately think you can flip a switch in your life and suddenly you're going to be the world's greatest person that can meditate. Become dissatisfied with simple, small little snacks. William Bates, regarding consistency in meditation, said, long interruptions of it will hinder the fruit of it. If the bird leaves her nest for a long space, the egg chills and are not fit for production. So when we leave our religious duties for a long space, our affections chill and grow cold. But when we are constant in his word, then shall we find the advantage of it. As far as content, I learned an acronym years ago that helped me. This might help you. It's P-P-R-O-A-P-T, P-PROAPT. I've just stuck that in my brain for 40 years. The first P is prepare. Prepare your surroundings, remove distractions, prepare. Second P is prayer. Always start with prayer to confess your sins and get your heart right with the Lord. The third letter, R, is read. Read the passage you intend and meditate on it. Look at it all kinds of different ways. Then O is organize. Organize your thoughts. Even writing down and exploring other verses that it leads you to. You're going to go on a pathway to look at some of this stuff. Then there's an A for apply. What do I need to change in my life because of this truth? The next P is for pray again. When you're done, when you've been through and studying God's word, pray for wisdom to apply it correctly. The last letter, T, teach. Find an opportunity to share with others what you've learned as this reinforces it in your mind. P-P-R-O-A-P-T, prepare, prayer, read, organize, apply, pray, and teach. The Puritans also had one more form of meditation, and that was special occasions. Are you going through a specifically difficult issue? Is there a major event ahead in your life, such as getting married, starting school, having a new child, changing jobs, a national election? Are you dealing with death? These are special occasions for meditation. Saturday night before a Sunday sermon is a great time for meditation. On our social media pages, we often post the songs that are going to be sung in the sermon title, so you can come to church well prepared. How about meditation in preparation of taking communion? John Owen identified five areas that should be meditated on before taking the Lord's Supper. The horrible guilt of sin demonstrated in the payment of the cross. The purity, holiness, and severity of God. The infinite wisdom and love of God in the cross that upholds his justice and goodness. The infinite love of Jesus who gave himself for sinners. And the reason Christ gave himself to the cross to reconcile sinners to God. Okay, you want to meditate. You understand what it is. You're committed to set aside time for it. So what do you meditate upon? Edward Calamy had a few basic guidelines that I find helpful. One, be simple. Pick out an easy subject to meditate on, the love of Jesus and his death on the cross. Don't start out trying to study double predestination or the hypostatic union or the Trinity. You're gonna get lost in that stuff. Start out with something that's simple. Second, be balanced. Don't get stuck on one subject. Have a few other subjects in mind. Third, be practical. Choose a subject that will stir your heart, something you're going through, something that you're going to be facing. And fourthly, be fitting. Choose a subject that matches your current condition. Meditation is not, I repeat, meditation is not a time for inquisitive thinking. If you're not in the habit, you're going to get easily sidetracked. Start with subjects you already have a basic understanding of. Consider meditating on the heinousness of your sin and how to overcome it. This will get you serious about fighting sin that so easily besets you. Meditate on foolishness and its consequences. That'll help you stop making bad choices. You want to improve your relationship with others? Don't meditate on how awful they are. Instead, spend time looking into your own issues, what you need to change to become more holy. Always find a scripture where you can anchor your thoughts. It might be the same verse for a couple different subjects. You're going to come back to the same verse, but that only serves to drive it deeper into your memory. Meditate on God's God's glorious nature, his providential dealings, his wrath, his glory, his justice, his power. There's so much about God we can meditate on. Here's a good one. Meditate on eternity and the glories of heaven. Sober yourself up by meditating on the certainty of death. This is going to get you to stop procrastinating. Meditate on the reality of hell. That's going to drive a lot more evangelistic conversation with unbelievers. Hope you get the idea here. Meditation will force you into the Word of God. It will drive your love for Christ and a denial of sin in your life because you see the offense it is to omniscient, all powerful, all loving, completely just God, and you're going to be enraptured in His love. It deepens repentance. It increases our resolve to fight sin. It inflames our heart's affection for the Lord. It increases our growth in grace. It provides comfort and assurance to our soul. It creates a life of joy, thankfulness, and contentment. It deepens and matures our Christian experience, and it pr- improves our knowledge and retention of God's word. Our passage in James concludes, verse 27, that this person who is quick to hear the word of God, who has the word of God implanted in them, who is a doer of the word, one that perseveres in the word, who looks deeply into the word of God and meditates on it day and night, this is the one who will be undefiled before God and will keep himself unspotted from the world? Don't you want to be one of those kind of people? Make it your habit to meditate on the Word of God. Would you close me with prayer? Lord, your Word does not return void. Your Word is truth. It is something we can count on, and we are so thankful that you have given us a written Word, a Word that is one that we can ponder in our hearts, we can meditate upon, we can see who you are, we can understand you better because of it. Lord, I pray that you would impact our hearts and our minds from this. And I even pray for my sister as she has meditated on other things and chooses not to turn her heart to meditate on your word. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness and grace that you have given all of us. May this week be one that we meditate on you and your word in your name. Amen.